I'll never mind all this one time. Ran a guy out of bounds into the bench, got a flag, and everyone else is yelling at him. And I'm like, yeah, that's how you do it. Good job. All right, listen up, everybody. I understand your obsession with takeout and fancy brunches and late-night delivery. Luckily, so does today's sponsor. Food lovers meet the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Now, with this credit card, you get four times the points on restaurants, deliveries, takeout orders, and dine-in brunches, lunches, or dinners. Plus, Altitude Go gets you two times the points on groceries. Yes, even delivery, streaming services, and gas or EV charging station pit stops. Visit usbank.com slash altitude go to apply and learn how you can earn 20,000 bonus points. You deserve a credit card that gives you more and more and even more. You deserve Altitude Go, NerdWallet's 2022 Best of Awards winner for Best Credit Card for Dining Benefits. Apply to become an Altitude Go cardholder at usbank.com slash altitude go. The creditor and issuer of this card is U.S. Bank National Association, pursuant to a license from Visa USA Incorporated. Some restrictions may apply. Hey, everybody. What's up? Trey Wingo here. Welcome into another episode of Half Forgotten History. And we've got a great guest for you. A newly minted Hall of Famer who was the stalwart of his franchise after they drafted him. His career didn't go as long as he wanted, but his impact cannot be overstated on that franchise. I'm talking about, of course, Jaguars offensive lineman and left tackle Tony Baselli. We talk about his journey from USC to Jacksonville, what it was like playing in Jacksonville when the Jaguars were, you know, good and not taking the first pick in the draft back-to-back years, plus maybe a little beef he has with Adam Schefter, and we'll let him fill you in on that. So enjoy our conversation with Tony Baselli. Let me begin by giving you a comparison. I I think when I think of great players in the NFL, especially Hall of Famers, longevity is normally the the thing. Are you okay with being the Terrell Davis of offensive linemen? No doubt about it. Hall of Fame career, obviously cut short by injury. Yeah, I have no choice because they're not going to let me go play again. I know that. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I mean, Trey, I've always said during this process is – my career is what it was, and I think, yeah. you know, trust me, there's nobody on planet Earth who wish it was longer. Yeah. Um, it killed me when it was over, but I got hurt. I had a bad surgery that didn't work, made it worse, and the rest is history. So, yeah, hey, I'm happy. Put me in the category of, you know, uh, the guys that had short careers. I'm good with that, and there's a handful yeah. of us, and if that's the category I'm in, but at the end of it, it says Hall of Fame, I'm good. Yeah, I mean, if you are with Terrell Davis and Gail Sayers, I mean, that, that's pretty elite company, right? That, that's just, that's about as good as it gets, Tony. I mean, that's um, those guys could run the rock. I'd be happy to block for them uh, and yeah. would have been very happy if they were behind me. So I think and also, and Trey, you know this, you've been around a long yeah. time. At the end of the day, I think people always say, hey, like when you watch, you know whether that person's a Hall of Famer or not. Like Exactly. If Aaron Donald quit right now and never oh, played yeah. another snap, you know, I think he's played eight years. Uh, I think that I got that right. I yep. mean, come on. He's a first battle Hall of Famer. I mean, what are no we brainer. waiting for? Like, no brainer. Yeah. Now, longevity is part of it. And I think if you having the ability – I always say, having the ability to play a long time, it's like it's three things. One, you have to be good. Uh, two, you have to get lucky in this game because stuff happens that is out of your control. And then three, you got to have some good DNA. Sometimes, you know – some ligaments are stronger than others, and, you know, that yeah. just – you get the break. So um, – but longevity should be a part of it. But I also think there's guys, and obviously I'm biased, that had re- shorter careers but dominated and were the, at the, were the best at what they did. There's no question about that. We'll get to your, your NFL career in a minute. But, like, I always love figuring out or hearing from guys, when did it, when did it click? Like, for you, was it in high school? Was it when you got to USC? When did you say to yourself, was there a moment, like, hey, I, I can do this at the highest level? Was, was there a, a practice, a play, yeah. something a coach said that made it all click for you? Well, I wanted to play the game ever since I can remember. I mean, my, I've told the story a couple of times that my dad lied for me to go play padded football because you had to be nine in Boulder, Colorado, where I grew up. I was only eight, and I was driving and crazy, and I wanted to play. So I always wanted to play, but I'll be honest with you, I was a big Bronco fan, and yeah, was it a dream to play in the NFL? But more than anything, I wanted to play high school football. Like, that was the big deal, Friday night football. Yeah. And 
I remember my senior year, I was pretty dang good. And all of a sudden I got all these big colleges coming and I, I'm like, holy cow, like USC wants me to come play football for them and they're going to pay for it. But I think it's when I got there, I knew, you know, I think I could be pretty good at this. And I had a great offensive line coach, John Masco, who's now the Washington, he's the Washington Commanders offensive line coach. He was with Ron Rivera at uh, Panthers before that forever. And so my first two years, my redshirt freshman year, I was all Pac-12. Well, all back Pac-10 back then. And that's when I, like, and people were starting to t- start to tell you, like, hey, you can do this. And I was competing against, you know, great players at USC, great players in the Pac-10 and having success. And I'm like, all right, I might have a future in this game. So USC, you know, for those that aren't of our vintage, for lack of yeah. a better term, you know, there, there was a thing about playing at USC, you know, student body, right? If you went to USC, there were two things that they were looking for all the time, great running backs and great offensive line. Like that, that was, that was the standard at USC. We're going to run the rock and we're going to run it behind these behemoths. So what did it mean for you as a high school kid, knowing that you're playing the offensive line, that they wanted you? It was huge. I mean, because SC, just the brand and the tradition. Yeah. I remember walking into the first time. Two things caught my eye. And I knew within an hour of being on campus, I was going to school there. One, they drove me by the pool, and I saw the uh, young, the co-eds at USC. I'm like, <laughs> I, like, I, like I like that. And, and I ended up... <laughs> <laughs> recruiting by any means necessary, Tony, by any means necessary. And I'm like, I like this part. And I ended up marrying a song girl who's still my wife today. And then the second thing I was walked into Heritage Hall and all the yeah. Heisman trophies were there. And they had this video where you could hit like historic moments of college football in USC. And I remember just sitting there mesmerized. I'm like, holy cow. Like to be a part of the Trojan family and a part of USC football was an honor. And those two things, and then you start learning the history and the great players. I mean, think about Ron Mix, Ron yeah. Yeri, Anthony Munoz, Bruce Matthews, and now to add my name to that list, that's five great offensive linemen. Four of them played yeah. only tackle. Bruce Matthews played anywhere he wanted to. He played center guard or right. tackle and made all pro. Yeah. And so, like, there's a history there, and to be a part of that is uh, – it was, it was amazing. It was, it was, it was great. I'm glad you brought up Bruce Matthews because I don't think people really understand what a freak he was, right? Like, if you go look at Bruce Matthews' career, he never missed a game. The only thing that stopped him from playing were two player strikes. That was it. And people didn't know this about Bruce, and you probably did. He was the emergency quarterback uh, for the Tennessee Titans and before that, the Houston Oilers. Like, if if the shit went sideways, they were going to line up (laughs) Bruce Matthews under center to play quarterback. Trey, he was a great athlete. I mean, yeah. any guy who can play any of the five positions. Now, I always felt like I could play anywhere on the offensive line. Right. Um, but with that said, I don't think I could play at the level that Bruce Matthews did. He was Pro Bowl, All Pro Center, guard, yeah. tackle. Like when they were struggling, I remember. I can't remember who they were playing. I remember, and I think it was before I got in the league. But I remember watching a game, and like he was playing. It might even been the playoffs. It was with the Oilers. The Houston Oilers, he was playing left guard. Their left tackle was struggling against a really good pass rusher. I can't remember who it is. Like midway through the game, they said, okay, we're going to change. Bruce, you go play left tackle and move someone else to guard because <laughs> their best player's out there. It's like, what do you do? I mean, and, and though, so he's one of the unique guys, if you look at his career, who played forever. Yeah. You know, something about those Matthews, something good in the, you know. Oh, my like, God, their DNA is ridiculous. Yeah, something that's in the water that's pretty good in that family. He played forever, and he played forever at a super high level. Like, that's yeah. – like, he defined positions. He did it forever. And I just love the fact – like, Bruce Matthews, Anthony Munoz, those are more contemporaries. Obviously, Ron Yeri, Ron Mix are older. But um, – and I'd be lying if I said I remember watching them as a little kid because I was like every other little kid. I wanted to be the quarterback. Um, right. But to be included and being – like, going to SC and, like, being in that small fraternity of those type of guys – and then being in the making the NFL, and then now making the Pro Football Fame, like it's unreal to me because those like guys set the standard. I mean, Anthony Munoz was the best left tackle ever played the game. And my favorite yep. thing always is when you know we'll joke around. He'll come up to me and says, "You're the best I ever saw do it." I'm like, Anthony, stop being kind. Everyone knows yeah. you're the greatest. Um, yeah. But just to, it's 
that's the cool stuff, Trey, this whole experience. I mean, it was I had it because I was part of SC and part of the NFL. But now, and I remember when Anthony Munoz came, I'm sure we'll talk about this later, knocked on my door, he gave me a hug. Yeah. He says, now we're on the same team. And I'm like, ah. hell yeah, hell yeah we are. I mean, that's <laughs> – I told him, well, that gave me too. That gave me chills. That gave oh. me chills right now. And I remember telling him, I said, "Listen, you play left tackle. I'll go play right tackle. You you, you got the seniority, yeah. and you're and so it, it's those are the cool moments." Yeah, and, and so you know, you, you win the Morris Trophy, which is for the best lineman in the Pac-12, and then you're all set for the draft. And for people that don't know, like back then, it wasn't what it is now. It was over two days. You know, it was a Saturday and a Sunday. Now it's this three-day primetime extravaganza, which is crazy, and it's great for the NFL. But it was a completely different experience when you were being drafted. Yeah. What do you remember about the the lead-up to your draft? I remember my agent calling me saying, hey, the NFL wants you to come to New York. And I said, there's no chance in hell I'm going to New York for the draft. And he says, why? I said, because I'm a junkie. I, I mean, I've been a junkie about yeah. football forever. I remember, and remember, Trey, every year it felt like, like there was that one guy who would slide. And they'd be right. in the green room and the camera would be on them and, and everyone would yep. be watching. And I would watch that. And I remember thinking in high school and college, I'm like, oh, my gosh, that has to be miserable. Like you're, you're, you're experiencing life. Like that's ultimate reality TV. This stuff they put on the television today said this is reality TV. No, it's not. You know it's a camera there and there's nothing. I mean, that's not reality. Reality TV, you go to the draft, that's reality TV. Like the, hit, yeah. the future of these guys is playing out in front of them. So in the back of my mind, Everyone had told me, hey, you're going to be a top 10 pick. You're going to be a top 10 pick, probably top five, blah, blah, blah. And I told my agent, I said, I'm not going. He goes, well, they want you to go really bad. I said, listen, Jack, it was Jack Mills. I said, Jack, I am not going to be that dude who's sitting in the green room and everyone's talking about for four hours as I sit there and watch everyone get picked in front of me. And, I, and he says, come on, is there any way I can get you to go? They're going to fly your fiance, my wife now, They're like first class, be nice. And I said, Jack, I'll make you a deal. I said, you call the top five teams. And if you, and Jack's still a friend to this day, I said, if you can guarantee me that I'm going by pick five, I'm there. He called me back 24 hours later. He says, I guarantee you're going before pick five. I said, I'm in. I'll go. And so, nice. um, yeah, so I remember going and we got to New York. And it was at, you know, it was at Radio City Meetings to Call. And we're, you know, yeah. they put us up at the Marriott Marquis. Uh, and I had my wife, uh, who's my girlfriend at the time, my parents came out, my uncle and aunt, and they all went, I, the best part about it is so, and I had a cousin who I went to high school with, who was one of my best friends, who was a teacher in New York at the time. And, and everyone went to a, a play movie and a play or a show. And I didn't want to go to a show. I was very uncultured right. as a senior in, in college at UFC. <laughs> and so me and my cousin went to the bars and we went out to all drinking. Yeah. I went out to the bars, had some beers, hung out. And I woke up, and the rest is a blur. I remember the, you know, Tom Coughlin picking me second, and the next thing I knew, I was on a jet to Jacksonville. Jacksonville's been home ever since. Well, it's interesting. I'm looking at the 95 draft, and uh, I'd just like to say congratulations on being one of the real big hits in this draft. Uh, Kajana Carter went first. Obviously, injuries. Injured, I understand yep. that. It tore up his knee. You second. Good. Uh, the, the very next pick would come be your nemesis, which we'll talk Steve about a McNair. Bit later. Steve yeah, McNair. Uh, that guy. Yeah. <laughs> Don't forget. And he was, one, and God rest yeah. his soul, one of the best people you'll yeah. ever meet, too. Trey, I don't know how much time you guys spent yeah. with him. I, I mean, you talk about a good dude. Yeah. I'm just looking here. Like, Kerry Collins had a, a decent career. Kevin Carter was okay, but like Mike Mamula, Kyle Brady, J.J. Stokes, Ruben Brown, six? Ellis Johnson. How about six Hall of Famers in that draft, Trey? Can you name the yeah. six Hall of Famers? Well, there's you, there's Ty Law, there's Warren Sapp, uh, there's uh, uh, Derek Brooks. Brooks. There's two running backs. Name the two running backs. Two running backs? Golly, you're killing me. Um, 95. Ugh. Curtis I'm Martin. Liking, man. Curtis, Curtis Martin. Martin. Terrell Davis. TD. Oh my God! TD in the sixth round. We just yeah. we just talked about Terrell Davis. <laughs> All right, that, that's a that's a two pod penalty on me for not not remembering that one. Um, okay, so while we take our first break here, right. when we get back, we'll talk about the assimilation in Jacksonville. And yes, we'll have to bring up that one season where you guys beat everybody except the team quarterback by Steve McNair. We're coming back on this episode of Half Forgotten History with Tony Pacelli right after this. It is a scientific fact here at Half Forgotten History. We have the smartest listeners around. 
And we want you to be smart with your money too, because that's kind of a big deal. And U.S. Bank offers a wide range of credit cards for a wide variety of financial needs. And one of its most useful cards is the U.S. Bank Visa Platinum Card. With a low introductory APR for 24 billing cycles, this card is a tool for getting ahead. The U.S. Bank Visa Platinum Card is a savvy financial move for large purchases, unexpected expenses, we all have those, and balance transfers. And with the ability to customize your payment date, this card really gives you control and flexibility over your financial future. Apply now at usbank.com slash platinum. With the U.S. Bank Visa Platinum Card, you can be worry-free for the next two years. And to see if you qualify for the best introductory APR out there, visit usbank.com slash platinum. Limited time offer, the creditor and issuer of this card is U.S. Bank National Association. Pursuant to a license from Visa USA Incorporated, some restrictions may apply. All right, back with Hall of Famer Tony Baselli on this episode of Half Forgotten History. So you go to Jacksonville, really, when they're just coming into the league. And um, when, when, did it, when did you realize that Tom Coughlin and what he was going to do was going to work in the NFL. How quickly did you? Because everyone has their Tom Coughlin story, right? Yeah. Ten minutes early is on time, all that kind of stuff. When did when did you think? Okay, I think what this guy's trying to do is going to work here. I didn't think until probably till the end of '96 when we made the playoffs yeah. because in '95 was a blur. I mean, you're a rookie. It's yeah. nuts. He's crazy. He's demanding. <laughs> I mean, Trey. I mean, here's yeah. a perfect example. We were full pads Wednesday, Thursday full speed. Yeah. We were in pads on Friday when everyone else is doing a glorified walkthrough. And he was unmerciful. And, you know, it was a nightmare. We come back in 96. We spent a bunch of money in free agency. We get Leon Searcy, Keenan McCardell. We get Andre Risen. Jimmy Smith was a special teams player of all things. And yeah. halfway through the season, we're four and seven, or three quarters almost, four and seven. And we had just cut Andre Risen, who was one of the most popular guys on the team as far as locker room, because he refused to run the right routes. I think everyone liked Andre <laughs> Risen in the locker room except for Mark Brunel because he would never be where he's supposed to. And I'll remember that day forever. We're in the locker room. They cut Andre Risen, and everyone's already almost rebelling against Tom because he just won't let up, and he's just yeah. tough as hell. And when they cut Andre Risen, I thought there was going to be a mutiny. You ask any of the beat writers back then, that day will go down in history of people like, holy cow, that they, like Tom might have just lost the locker room. All we did from that point on is win the last five games, sneak in at nine and seven, and we're a play or two away from going to the Super Bowl because we beat Buffalo. We've never lost to Buffalo yeah. to this day besides to us. We beat Denver, the best team in the NFL that year. And then we. Well, Mark Schlereth still hates that game. Like, Mark Schlereth still hates that game. I, in fact, I think if I'm not mistaken, you guys played each other the last week of the regular season that year, and Denver didn't show anything because they thought they might no, have to see you in the postseason. No, it was the. That was, you're going, that's another. That's the, we played back to back playoffs. Yeah, but. Right, right, right. Yep. We played the last preseason game that year, and then we didn't play again. And then we played in that. That, that was the game where Woody Page, the columnist, basically said, Call this the didn't basically did call this the Jag Wads until so we, we were fifty <laughs> we were fifteen and a half point dogs. I, I remember waking up having breakfast. I was sick as a dog. I had the flu and yeah. trying to. I was throwing up and reading the article. And this is where I grew up. I grew up in Colorado. So, but right. we ended up winning. But that's when you I, I you know you get on that streak. You learn how to win, and now all of a sudden the crazy stuff Tom's doing doesn't bother you as much. Because you're winning football right. games. And and one thing Tom did, we had a close locker room. We had a good locker room. Like, we were in it for each other. And I think part of it was because he beat the hell out of us. So it's like, like we have nobody else but each other. And and I thought that second half of 96, is I'm like, okay, we got a chance to be a pretty good football team. And we're going to be good for several years because we got pieces. You know, that's where Jimmy Smith – Andre Eisen gets cut, Trey. Jimmy Smith was – an afterthought. Maybe the third receiver, really the fourth receiver. Yeah. He, Andre Risen gets cut, and all Jimmy Smith does is become one of the best, you know, five-time Pro Bowler and one of the best receivers in the AFC from that point on. And so, you know, Mark Brunell came into his own. I mean, that's where all of a sudden, like, okay, we have some talent. We can, we can do something here. Well, it's funny you say that because, you know, Andre Risen being cut allowed Jimmy to do what he was doing. People forget at one point, both Keenan McCardell and Jimmy Smith were on the, were on the Cowboys. 
that Cowboys team in the mid nineties, and they were both cut. Jimmy was let go because of a, obviously a medical issue, but that was a, a problem between him and the Cowboys and Keenan McCardell didn't stick. And then the lot wind up with you guys in the, on Jacksonville and you have Fred Taylor in the backfield. you got Mark Brunel. When people think of the Jaguars now outside of that crazy 2017 season, where they, you know, they had a 10-point lead in the fourth quarter in Foxborough in the AFC yep. Championship game. The Jaguars that you guys were are nothing like the Jaguars are now. How frustrating is that for you? You know, it's it's super frustrating because I'm, I mean, I still live here um, in Jacksonville. It's my home, and I'm still part of the organization. I mean, I love that place because, you know, when I got drafted, I always felt like I was I had a responsibility as the first pick. Like, hey, you represent this organization, and you will forever. Um, and for us to have so little success, first, I, I hate it for the ownership because Sean Khan is a great yeah. guy and he has a good family and he's not an owner that doesn't invest. I mean, it's like, right. Trey, how often do you get owners spending a bunch of money and willing to do anything and still can't figure it out? And so I'm, you know, yeah. hopefully got it right with Doug Peterson um, here, the latest uh, coach. But it's super frustrating because you get tired of being like the joke. The, you know, yeah. you know, the, you know, everyone looking down and forgetting about, I mean, we were always a small market, but back in the nineties, second half of the nineties, like we were one of the elite teams. Like when you talked about top teams, Jacksonville was in the conversation. And so it gets super frustrating. It, I don't want to say embarrassing, but you know, I do national games still. And I'm on the road and I get tired of asking the same dang question. What's wrong with the Jaguars? And so hopefully, yeah. hopefully we figured it out and got the right guy in there and Doug Peterson. Well, listen, b before we move on from how frustrating it is, th this whole last season was just such a disaster. Dysfunctional. The Meyer thing. Dysfunctional yes. is the term I use. Yeah, that's 100% right. And it's so hard because, listen, the f like the first two moves Urban made, I'm like, this is not going to work out. And when he brought in the strength coach, yep. and because he, 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 he said he knew him. It's like. Urban, doesn't matter what you think. It's what the players think. Right. And he never understood that. He never he never understood that. And then he signs Tebow. And I, I love Tim Tebow. I want to be 100% clear. He, he someone presented with an opportunity. He took it good for him. But come on, man. You, you can't sign him to a contract. You give him a tryout. Give him a tryout. And if it, if it works, then you sign him. He signed him right away. And I'm like, those are two signs that Urban does not understand what he's getting himself into. He didn't get it. He didn't get the NFL. He didn't understand. Like, the one thing that Urban Meyer is great at is recruiting. No one cares in the NFL yeah. if you can recruit. I mean, you got to be able to coach yeah. ball. You have to be able to manage a locker room of 53 guys. You have to manage the building. You're the face of the organization in the, in the community. He did not get that. Um, and I think, you know, and, like, you bring up a great point about Tim Tebow, and I hate it because Tim Tebow's a Jacksonville kid. I, love, I root for Tim Tebow. Yeah. I, want, I want him to do well. Absolutely. But when you're a bad football team, every roster spot matters. I mean, and you're going to give one of those roster spots to a guy who hasn't played football for a long time and has never played anything but quarterback? Like, what? Do we, this isn't this isn't the circus. This isn't like, no. hey, this isn't minor league baseball. Like, hey, let's sell some tickets and you know, give away you know, bats and little helmets because we're excited about getting fans out. And I just, I didn't like it for Tim. I didn't like it for the organization because I think it just sent the wrong message, and, and it was unfair to Tim because he was never going to. I mean. Trey, you know this. I mean, these are the best of the best. You sit out that long and never have played a position. I mean, it's you have no chance. And and so that I agree with you. And I'll give you another one that I knew we were in trouble. When he made it an open competition between Gardner Minshew and Trevor Lawrence, when everyone in the world knew Trevor Lawrence was your quarterback, and, I, and people are always like, why are you making such a big deal about them, Tony? I said, because this is why. In the NFL today, training camp is limited. You don't get two days. You have limited reps. You need to get as many reps for that kid as you possibly can. And giving Gardner Minshew one of them is one too many. And I and they let right. this play out through the first three preseason games. I'm like, what are you doing? You don't understand the NFL if you do that. No, he, he never did. And so many college coaches don't understand it because you're dealing with guys that are 28, 29 and, and men, not kids that you can bully and influence That's right. anymore. And it's just it's a total it's a totally different dynamic. Before we uh, move on to the Hall of Fame part of this, I, I do want to, like, it's so hard for an offensive lineman to get shine, right? Like, my son played offensive lineman. Like, it's the worst. He was a guard. It's the worst position in the world. <laughs> like, you only get called out if you do something wrong, right? There's, there's very little glory in being an offensive lineman. But I remember distinctly, 
I think it was a Monday night game between you guys and the Steelers. No, it was Dolphins. You, you think of Jason Taylor. It's the Dolphins. And yes, Jason yes, Taylor. you're right. Yep. It was the Dolphins. Well, there's a, there's a, yeah, that's right. And there was a long play, right? I, I, it was yep. a long play down the field. And at one point, you turned around to him and said, hey, we're going this way. Come yeah, on. Yeah, we're, yeah. We're, we moved the ball down here. We're going this That was one of the coolest. That was that was one of the, the coldest things I've ever seen in my life of an offensive line. You're like, hey, cool, but we're down here now. Come on. Yeah, so, the, you know, the funny thing about that is, I mean, Jason Taylor, Hall of Famer, great player. And he was young in his career. And, I mean, I was probably in year four or five. And all week, like, not all week, but multiple times, he, like, said stuff about me in the paper, like, in the, in the national media. And I'm like, what the hell is this guy doing? And now I got my teammates and coaches, like, giving me a hard time. And so we get into the game, and he is talking. And Jason, now he's, being, he's a friend now, but he was talking the whole, yeah. from snap one tray, talking, talking just mass stuff. And he wouldn't shut up. And so I was pissed. And I didn't, what I didn't realize, though, it was when Dan Dieterhoff was doing Monday Night Football that they were, like, highlighting this matchup. And so I got a personal foul because I had blocked him and he was on the ground. I went and gored him. I was, I was trying to yeah. physically kill him, like, every snap. <laughs> And he would not stop talking. And so I was just, like, I was beside myself. And that was at the end of the game. It's a long pass to Keenan McCardell. And, you know, he'd been, and he had done nothing that game. I had a good game. I had a good game against him. And he would never stop talking. So that touchdown sealed it. It ended the game. And I'm jogging. And I, and I, it wasn't like it was planned. I just turn around and yeah. see him kind of jogging with his head down. And I just, out of nowhere, started going, come on, come get some more of this. Let's go. We're down here. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I had no idea, though, that, you know, ABC had the highlight of me and Jason Taylor's battle. And I get home that night, and the next day I'm getting all kinds of phone calls. And, you know, I don't even know if I had email back then. Um, and yeah. people were calling me. There was no social media. Like, well, we saw – I'm like, you saw what? What did you see? You on TV with, you know, Jason Taylor. And since then it's been – it's one of the favorites of all Jags fans. They bring it up all the time. Oh, it's, it was absolutely a classic. And, and you just said something there that I think is why so many guys like to play offensive line. Like, I, you know, obviously Mark Schlereth is a really good friend of yep. mine. Damian Woody is a good friend of mine. The ability to go out there and, like you said, physically assault someone legally yeah. for three hours. And, like, Schlereth has the greatest line ever, and I'm sure you feel the same way. Moving a man against his will is one of the most – awesome feelings you can have as a human being. There's nothing better. And I, like one of my favorite things is to literally you're moving a man that you get to physically like throw him on the ground and like, just you're, you're enforcing your will. It's like your, it's like his will against my will. And at the end of the day, only one of us is going to win. And when you win that battle and it's 70 times in a game, there's not many better feelings. And back then the games changed so much. Like you got a guy in the yeah. if you got a guy in the ground, Trey, you could go after him. I mean, it was like, hey, like this is not over until the whistle blows. There's no like unnecessary defenseless player. It's like yeah. the ball snaps, it's a war, and we're not going to call anything until the yeah. whistle stops. You know, I, a lot of the stuff that you know Stink would have done, and I did, David Woody. I mean, you get you might get thrown out of the league for that, doing that nowadays. Yeah, but it's it, it's still like oh, it's, it's the an best. Odd, like as. Yeah, like as a father, you know, like as I'm a skinny dude, my, my son was, you know, he was about 280 when he played in college. To see him push people around, I was like, yeah, go get some. Oh, you know, I, I, I felt like I was living through him. My oldest boys both played football and played in college. And uh, and one was an offensive lineman, one was a tight end. And I used to just sit there, and when they would, like, dominate something, I'll never my oldest one time, ran a guy out of bounds into the bench, got a flag, and everyone else is yelling at him. And I'm like, yeah, that's how you do it. Like, good job. <laughs> right out of the blind side. Yeah. Oh, my God. Was there a guy when you played that was awesome, that was really, really good as a defensive lineman, linebacker, whatever, that you just had his number? That was, like, he may be borderline Hall of Fame, whatever, but you knew whenever you saw that matchup, like, I got this guy. So, Trey, it's interesting. That's a great question. Usually people ask me, is there one who, who gave you the most issues? And that's an easy answer for me. Yeah. John Randall gave me the most issues. Uh, oh, I'll never forget. Speaking it. of yapping. Yeah, it was a miserable night for me. And this is how I explain it. And people say, well, I watched the game. It wasn't that bad. It was bad because I was never comfortable. Like, I always prided myself. Yeah. I could get into a game. 
and no matter what, I don't care who I was playing, the great Bruce Smith, who's like everyone talks about Aaron Donald, the greatest defensive player ever. He might be. But don't forget about Lawrence Taylor. And don't forget about Bruce Smith. And I played against Bruce Smith. Correct. And um, but I, I, for whatever reason, I could get comfortable. Like I figure, like I was in control of the situation. I could never get that with John Randall. And I think one of my approach to all these games, every time I played, whether it was against Bruce Smith or Derek Thomas or any great player um, or just an average guy, I was I always gave them the utmost respect, and I never felt like I had them. Because as soon as I felt like I had somebody, it's why I hated the preseason. I go in the preseason because there was yeah. that com- no competitiveness and it wasn't. There's nothing on the line. Like I went in almost afraid, not afraid of the individual, but like, hey, high alert! Like this is an NFL player, and this guy could beat me if I'm not careful. And I felt like I had set a standard and wanted to live up to a standard that anything less than protect- perfection wasn't good enough. So I can honestly say I never went into a game thinking, I got this guy. Now, there were certain guys who gave me – I worried about more than others. So, like, speed guys never worried me. Like, Derek Thomas was a fabulous player. I mean, just a – what an amazing athlete. But I worried much less about him than an average player who had power and a little bit of speed. Because I figured if you were one-dimensional, even as special right. as Derek Thomas was – and he could run around everywhere. I just felt like my athletic ability, I could handle it, especially if I didn't have to worry about power. Um, it's why, like, John Randall was so hard because I was worried about the power and the speed and everything else. And I'm not taking anything away from Derek Thomas. I had to be perfect that day to block right. him. But I worried less about right. that than a guy like a Bruce Smith or a John Randall because they have both speed and power. It, it's that combination that I think always gives guys more trouble uh, when you had – because you could change it up. It's like a great pitcher. I don't care how great a pitcher you are in baseball. You can throw 102 miles an hour. But if that's all you have, sooner or later, the great hitters right. are going to time you up and get it going. But if you that have. That ball's got to move. If, that ball's got to move. It, it, you either got to have 102, and then you better have a changeup that has, comes out at the same angle that's 85. Now, uh oh, I got issues because I don't know what's coming. Yeah. And that's how I always felt about blocking defensive ends. And I'll give you a name that nobody. I mean, you probably remember, but very few people remember. But he was on that those great Raven defenses, and that's Michael McCrary. Michael McCrary was one of the oh, best. Absolutely. was one of the best defensive linemen I ever played in my career. And when I say one of the best, I'm talking about with the Bruce Smiths and the and the Derek Thomases, and I'm talking about John Randall. And I mean, he was one of the greatest competitors I've ever played. And and, and I just have the utmost respect for all the guys I mentioned and a lot of other guys. But I never took any of them for granted because I learned. I learned early, probably back growing up, and it probably came from my dad, that don't take anything for granted. As soon as you get comfortable, that's when you get beat. And so I always, I was always on high alert going into these games. Yeah, McCrary was the unsung part of that, that right. Ravens defense because everybody remembered the big guys in the middle and Ray Lewis and the secondary. Yep. McCrary was unbelievable. That, that's, a, that's a great name that a lot of people don't remember. All right, we've gone as long as we can. we got to bring it up the season. Wow. You, guys went, you guys went 15 and 3. You just couldn't beat one team. And, of course, that was the Tennessee Titans. They swept you in the regular season, and they got you in the AFC Championship game at your place. Um, What was it about that team that gave you guys so much trouble? Well, number one, they're a great team. Obviously, they made the Super Bowl, and they probably had a chance chance to win it against the greatest show on turf, I mean, at the very end. So they were a great team. Greatest tackle in the history of the NFL outside of the Aaron Donald sack and the last Super Bowl. Agreed. I mean, it's like go down to history. Um, so they're a really good team. It just happened to be two of the best teams in the AFC were both right in the uh, old AFC Central. Um, I think I'll go back to week two that year. So we both both of us won opening day. It's week two. It's a rainy, warm but rainy day in Jacksonville in North Florida. And we're playing the Titans. And, and we have it first and goal with a chance to win it with under 30 seconds left. And we have a turnover. And we should have won. And I actually argue, and, you know, I think, you know, and I got to go look at, I think we could have just kicked a field goal even. But anyways, we turn it over and we don't win that game. And we, we should have beat them. I mean, we were controlling the game. And and I think if we win that game, it's a completely different story 
I mean, obviously, sure. we never lost again until we played them on the day after Christmas. But I just think it, it sets, it changes, you know, kind of changes how you feel because we then we go up to Tennessee day after Christmas. We travel Christmas Day and they blitz us. Mark gets hurt, gets a concussion early. You know, we can't tackle Steve McNair or Eddie George. And Frank Wycheck is running down the seam on us, and that got away from us early. And so now all of a sudden you're in the AFC Championship game and they beat you twice and we we jump out on them early. But we have an we're driving up and down the field, but we have a turnover in the red zone, and we go into the halftime at the lead, but in the second half turnovers we have a safe it just everything started snowballing against us. And I was actually in, I didn't play in the AFC Championship game because I blown my knee out at the end of the. Uh, yeah end of uh, week six or week, the last weekend of the uh, regular season. And I remember watching that game trade. It was like everything, like the thoughts that come into athletes' minds when you get those situations, like, uh-oh, here we go again. And as soon as you yeah. have that here we go again thought, it is over. Like that is the thought you have to fight against if you're an athlete. And sitting on the sidelines, I was like, uh-oh, here we go again. And if I and I'm like, I hope no one else is thinking that because this is what it feels like. And they had our number that year, and and I'll tell you, it's yeah. changed. You know, now we're both in the AFC South. That's the biggest rival of the Jacksonville Jaguars, and they've had our number for a while. We haven't won up there since 2013. Um, obviously, we've not won a lot of places since in the last 20 years, but um, <laughs> <laughs> Tennessee has our number. And I think we need a year where we go sweep them and dominate them, just like take the change the course of history. Um, because that right now, I need to erase that. And the only way you erase that is you get to the Super Bowl. Um, right. Otherwise, that's all anyone's going to talk about in Jacksonville. Well, it's funny because, and again, we'll we'll leave it here because the week before you guys oh, we played them in the, the AFC we Championship game, the Dolphins. You beat them sixty-two to seven. It was a, that was when that was Dan Marino's last game in the NFL, and you took his soul sixty-two to seven, and then they took your soul the very next. So, try. I got another trivia for you. Name the, and I think it's right. three, but I'm gonna say two for sure. Name the two Hall of Fame quarterbacks yeah. whose careers we ended. Well, Marino's one yep. of them for sure. Um, career. I'm trying to think. Oh, it, it was it was it no it was no it was no I, I, that was stupid never mind um well was it uh was it Jim Kelly Jim Kelly we knocked him out in the fourth quarter with a yeah. concussion I hated seeing him go out that was the last time he ever played good night everybody yep, that was it and then yeah. I'm pretty sure and I got to go look this back up because I, I can't remember if I'm in '99 we played the 49ers opening day and just killed them I mean just blew them out. And we knocked Steve forty one to three. And we knocked Steve Young at the end of that game with a concussion. I'm not sure he came back the rest yeah. of the year, if I remember right. Yeah, I, I, I he might have, but I'm not. You're, you're right. Was that a Monday night game? No, it was a Sunday afternoon game. It was opening weekend. Okay. I got to go look up. Anyways, yeah, but back. I mean, the, yeah. I mean, you talk about two different like you have the Dolphins, who by the way they weren't that good that year. That was the end of Dan. I mean, he was older. Jimmy Johnson was hanging on. Yeah. They snuck into the playoffs by a threat. I mean, right. But sixty-two to yeah, seven. Yeah, but I knew they had no chance. I mean, they had no chance. I mean, we. I mean, it doesn't. But it doesn't matter how much you beat the Dolphins by. Like people talk about them, like, but nobody here cares. We lost to the Titans the next week. It doesn't matter. Yeah, it was just crazy. Like I thought there was no way you guys were losing that game. And yeah, then, me too. You know, I thought I was like, we're going. To Super Bowl. I'm like, we're going to Super Bowl. Yeah. We're going. Well, if it helps, that Super Bowl was the worst Super Bowl experience of all time. It rained and iced in Atlanta the entire week. And you know, it was that, awful. And Trey, Absolutely that was the awful. last time the NFL only had one week between the uh, the championship game Correct. and Super Bowl, which is the dumbest idea they've ever had. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it was icy, and all kinds of bad things happened for people in that in Atlanta. Yeah. And uh, yeah. So yeah, a lot of bad things happened. A lot that of bad things. Um, <laughs> that's that's a whole other show, man. Yeah. Uh, tell you what, why don't we why don't we take our second break? We'll come back and talk about the weight. Okay. Uh, for Tony Baselli. Uh, and I'm not talking about like 300 pounds. Uh, we're coming right back on this episode of Half Forgotten History right after this. It is a scientific fact here at Half Forgotten History. We have the smartest listeners around. And we want you to be smart with your money, too, because that's kind of a big deal. And U.S. Bank offers a wide range of credit cards for a wide variety of financial needs. And one of its most useful cards 
is the U.S. Bank Visa Platinum Card. With a low introductory APR for 24 billing cycles, this card is a tool for getting ahead. The U.S. Bank Visa Platinum Card is a savvy financial move for large purchases, unexpected expenses, we all have those, and balance transfers. And with the ability to customize your payment date, this card really gives you control and flexibility over your financial future. Apply now at usbank.com platinum. With the U.S. Bank Visa Platinum Card, you can be worry-free for the next two years. And to see if you qualify for the best introductory APR out there, visit usbank.com platinum. Limited time offer, the creditor and issue of this card is U.S. Bank National Association. Pursuant to a license from Visa USA Incorporated, some restrictions may apply. All right, back with now Hall of Famer Tony Baselli. So when you hung it up after that one year uh, with the Houston Texans, what were your thoughts on the Hall of Fame? Like, what were your thoughts on, yeah, I'll get there one day? Yeah, I never, I didn't think about it for a second, Trey. I was so fixated on doing, I mean, I spent a year, three surgeries, 12 hours a day in the rehab of doing everything I could trying to play again. And so when reality hit me that, my shoulder was never going to work again. It still doesn't work to this day. I can laugh now, but it was more crying back then. I mean, I was depressed. I didn't want to get out of bed. Thank God I have a great wife who, you know, hung in there and encouraged me. But I was, I was devastated because I, I felt like I was never going to do what I wanted to do again, which I wasn't. What I loved was the game of football. I felt like I was letting down the Texans. They brought me in there to be a left tackle and to be who I was. So I felt like I was letting everyone down. And it was miserable. Yeah. I didn't know what the, I was going to do the rest of my life. I'm 30 years old. I felt like I was going to play another five, six years. And now all of a sudden I'm faced with, like, the reality and the mortality of my football life is, like, I'm dead. Um, and so it was. I didn't even think about the Hall of Fame. I didn't think about anything except for I was just searching for what's next and what am I going to do and how, like – can I, I remember praying, oh my God, give me a miracle, fix it. I want to play. Like, is there, like, what can I do? So I didn't probably really think much about the Hall of Fame until I moved back to Jacksonville a couple years later. And I remember one day I'm listening to sports talk radio. And maybe it was three or four years later, and, and, and Adam Scheffner's on with two local guys. And the local guys brought up, um, their friends, Mike, a guy named Dan Hicken, Jeff Rosser, brought up, you know, it was right around the Hall of Fame. And they asked about me. What do you think about Tony Baselli? And Adam Scheffner says, no chance, no way Tony Baselli ever makes the Hall of Fame. <laughs> and I'm so bringing this up with him the next time I talk to him. Like, this is the first thing he's going to hear. And so I remember I'm riding my car and I'm listening to this and I'm like, it hit me for the first time. I'm like, wow, I wonder if he's right. And I just thought about it for a little bit. And I'm like, well, maybe he's right. I can't, there's nothing I can do. My career's short. And I remember someone's, and then, and then fast forward the draft that same year or close to it, maybe it was a year later. And I'm, I'm watching the draft and someone says, like whoever the commentator says, they're talking about some offensive tackle. They say, yeah, but he's no Tony Baselli. And then like three or four years in a row, they kept on comparing like who was coming in to me. And I remember thinking, I'm like, well, like, I'm like, I was either really good at what I did, and now, like, so I've set a standard. And they weren't mentioning other guys who end up being Hall of Famers. And so people started asking me, like, well, why do they keep on using you as a standard? Why aren't they talking about Jonathan Ogden or whoever? Who, by the way, my yeah. com- uh, contemporary great player, amazing. He was Absolutely. at UCLA when I was at SC. We competed then. He was at the Ravens when I was at the Jaguars. I mean, the biggest human One of being, the largest human beings you'll ever meet. <laughs> he makes he's me just, look like he has. He's, he makes me look yeah, small. He has his own. He has his own moons. That's how big <laughs> Jonathan. He's, is. And he's great. But I and so all of a sudden people started asking me, and then I started thinking, I'm like, wow, I wonder if I will make the Hall of Fame, and and then next thing you know, I'm a finalist one year out of the blue. I had no idea. Like I, they t- the first I get a phone call and say, hey, did you know you made semifinals? I'm like, I don't know what that means, but great. And then I get a call from the Hall of Fame saying, you're a finalist for the Hall of Fame six years ago. And I'm like, that's cool. And so each kind of each moment, Trey, you know, it's like it wasn't real at all when I retired. I was too fixated on trying to get healthy and like mentally healthy. I wasn't mentally healthy. I was like down. And then you hear people like Adam Scheffner, who I have nothing against. I love him. But the fact that he said it next time, just remind him. Oh, I'm killing him. Tell him him I'm coming looking for him. 
And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and then, you know, people, and then all of a sudden people start bringing it up to me, like, Hey, you're a hall of famer. And, and I remember like peers of mine saying you're a hall of famer. And I'm like, well, I don't know. They haven't put my name in there yet. But then the real weight yeah. comes when you become a finalist and being a finalist six years. Yeah. That's when it feels like it gets like, wow, is this ever going to happen? And, uh, I'm just glad it didn't take seven. I'm glad it only took six. Cause <laughs> It's a yeah. When, well, I mean, to to me, the standard should be pretty simple. If you were voted on as a part of an all-decade team, like when you played over a, a ten-year span, you were the best in that position. Like, what's the argument? Like, why are we even having this discussion? That to me, that should be the rubber stamp. Forget you know, three-time All-Pro, five-time Pro Bowl, or all that kind of stuff, which is all great. But if, if they take a team for a ten-year span and said you're on that team, that is. To me, signed, sealed, and delivered Hall of Famer. Yeah, and I think the other thing for me, Trey, is I think and the other thing that I've always been proud, I guess proud of is the right word, but I always looked at it and I'm like, oh, that's interesting. So I was three-time All-Pro and twice NFL Lineman of the Year. And think about yep. the guys I played with in the era I played in. Willie Rove, Hall of Famer. Jonathan oh. Ogden, Hall of Famer. Orlando Pace, Hall of Famer. Walter Jones, Hall of Famer. Early in my career, Gary Zimmerman, Hall of Famer. Like, you talk about... Member of two all-decade teams, by the way. He was all-decade yeah, at the 80s and the and 90s. the 90s. So you talk about, like, great players. At, I mean, that was like... I mean, I've, people have said it's the golden age of offensive tackle. And so one of my things... And I, people always used to say, it was like, well, these other guys are in the Hall of Fame, and you were all pro over them. And... And I, my response always was, they played longer than I didn't. They were equally great players. So, yeah. I, and I go back to my career was what it was. I can't change it. Yeah. And I think I watch guys today. I remember saying when you know, you you watch a guy like an Aaron Donald, Gronkowski. You know, even before you know his rebirth and coming back at Tampa. I mean, you look at great players. You know, they're great players. You know, you know, they're all time. Yeah greats of guys who do things that are special and they're just different and the fact that i get to get to be included i don't care what anyone says now even if adam Schefter doesn't think i'm in the hall should be in the hall of fame too bad i'm there you can't take it away from me now yeah that's exactly <laughs> right and and i i heard a great story uh about a very special message that was taped for you yeah that you got after you got the news. Why don't you tell us about that? So, you know, last year, when I the fifth year when I got the call from David Baker, the then president of the Hall of Fame, saying I didn't make it. It was a weird year for me, Trey. I mean, I had COVID. I was in the ICU. My wife had two cancer scares. Oh, and, I remember, my, yeah. and my dad was diagnosed with cancer in 2020. And so I remember I got the call, and I actually was the least upset I've ever been because I had so much other stuff going in life. But the one thing that bummed me out and David Baker said, well, what do you think? I said, well, David, be honest with you, I'm just disappointed because I don't think my dad's going to make it. And I don't think he's going to make it another year because the doctor just said, listen, it doesn't look good. And he ended up dying um, Memorial Day, on Memorial Day um, of 2021 of cancer. And and it bummed me out because I'm like, you know, he was my biggest fan. He was this. He, he came every year to the Super Bowl, wanted to be a part of the Hall of Fame. And I knew he wasn't going to be there. So fast forward, obviously, you know, I make the Hall of Fame. And on the honors night, we're sitting there, and we, uh, the Jaguars and my wife hosted a big party at USC, right at Heritage Hall. It was awesome. The band was there, the song girls. I mean, all my friends. It was great. And at the end, they start running this video. And, you know, it's my buddies and ex-coaches, and half my buddies are giving, taking shots at me, making fun of me, which I, that's what it's supposed to be about. We're laughing. It was great. Exactly. It was awesome. Exactly. I love like that's why I miss the locker room. Like the, the locker room is great because you can make fun of people and there's no consequences. Like I miss that. I like I like getting made fun of and I like making fun of people. So, anyways, so I'm sitting there watching, laughing. All of a sudden, the video's wrapping up and my dad pops up on the screen, and it's uh, traced 12 days before he died. And my wife, who's my best friend, we've been married 27 years this year, went to SC together. Her and one of my best friends, a guy named Eric Murphy, um, when everyone knew my dad had a couple weeks left, went to him and said, hey, you need to make a video for your son for the Hall of Fame. 
And they just said, hey, even if he doesn't make it, like, let's just have this ready just in case he does. Because everyone thought this was the year. I mean, even all the experts. Right. And, uh, and my dad didn't want to do a tray at first. He's, because he didn't want to admit that he was dying. And they convinced him to do it. And all of a sudden he pops up and he's, you know, I mean, I mean he's, he's dying. I mean, and you can see it. And Trey, I'll be honest with you, I, didn't, I couldn't watch it. Um, I put my hand in my head, especially like his opening line. Is I, All I heard is he said, I'm so proud of you. And what dad, I mean, what son does, that's all, I mean, as a son, what else do you need? What else do you need in life when your dad looks at you and says, I'm proud of you? And and at that moment, I was just, I was done, put my head in my, and I still have to watch the video because I just, you know, I'm a man of faith and I have a strong faith. And I know he's in heaven and he's watching. But I miss him. And I miss him. I miss him less just because I want to be around him. I mean, anyone who's lost their dad, you pick up the phone sometimes and want to call your dad because you want to tell him something. Obviously, that's going to go on forever. What I miss is seeing his smile when he found out his son made was Hall of Famer. That's what I miss. Yeah. And uh, yeah. the fact that they did that, my, I mean, it was awesome. I, I mean, it was, and it's, uh, it's one of the great moments of this journey. I mean, we all have great moments in life, and that's one of them. Well, I heard that story and I was just blown away and I just thought that was so cool and that that had to be a really special moment for you. So I'm glad in some way, shape or form, he was able to be a part of the experience for you. Um, Your career was amazing. Uh, I really enjoyed watching you play. And, uh, uh, you know, for the next few drafts, I can promise you I'll be a part of. I'll say, yeah, he's good, (laughs) but he's no Tony Baselli. I can promise you, you will hear that line out of my mouth. Trey, I appreciate it. It was good it was great seeing you at the Super Bowl, and uh, thanks for having me. This is awesome. Love talking about it. And uh, even though you brought up the 99-year uh, season <laughs> when we won 15 football games but lost three to the same damn team, uh, anytime I, I love talking the history of the game, and this is a lot of fun for me. Appreciate you, Tony. Thanks, Trey. So thanks once again to Tony Baselli. So good to spend some time with him. Can't wait to be there in Canton with him when he gets enshrined in the Pro Football Hall of Fame this summer. Next week's guest is not going to the Pro Football Hall of Fame, but he's going to the Hall of Fame when it comes to football business. Nobody's been paid more to not play than quarterback Chase Daniel. Uh, We'll talk about his incredible run and how he has hit the bank again and again and again and what his plans are when eventually people stop paying him to not play. That's Chase Daniel next week on That Forgotten History. We'll see you then. Yeah.